Good morning, podcasters. Welcome to True Crime Predators with Kathy Cassidy. I'm a clinical forensic therapist, and today is going to be a little different. My sister, Brandy, is going to be interviewing me. So, good hi, morning. Hi, Brandy. So, today she's going to, she didn't even really tell me what she has planned for me. So, we're going to. For me, it's going to be a little uh, flying by the seat of my pants, and we'll see what we have going. Which is like therapy for you, which is what you do the best. But I don't do therapy for myself, so we'll see how this goes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I know back when you started your career, I would tell you how impressed we were, how amazed we all were, and then when you got your degree... For forensic therapy, it sounds so scary. Oh, yeah, you did say that. So it's uh, actually forensic psychology was the degree. What was scary about it? I think the name itself, when you say forensics, you think deep, you think like true crimes, you think forensics is a, is a big word. You think like... I'm going to be in a trench coat out in the woods. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like Blue's Clues. Blue's Clues? Oh, no. What's his name? <laughs> Inspector Gadget, maybe? With, uh, like, a little bit of... Death? Like, first 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, a little of all of that. Yeah, because I remember my sister told me when I was doing, uh, making some sort of a profile for something, and I wrote... That I was a, because I always refer to myself as a clinical forensic therapist, which covers that I do regular counseling and that I do forensic counseling. Remember, Brand, when you told me, like, you need to explain, she told me I need to explain what forensics is because she thought it was intimidating to my clientele or any potential, right? Yeah, because if you're searching for therapists and you see that, you think, Oh, that's not, I'm not looking for somebody forensics. Like, I'm not looking to go to jail. Right. Or like (laughs) that they're going to take my DNA and do something with it. Like, no, I'm not looking for that. So when you were doing your resume or your profile, profile, I wanted to make sure, because it is a big word and it's impressive and it will definitely make somebody stop and look. But not when you're trying to work through uh, trauma. your marriage <laughs> right. counseling or trauma or, or sexual trauma. Yeah, I don't want my DNA. So <laughs> that was super a good insight for me to hear because I never thought of that. So I don't know if I ever fixed. I think I did fix it. I think I explained that the forensic piece of what I do for forensic psychology, what that means is that it's a blend of psychology and working with law enforcement or the law, the legal system. So that means that I can work with, that I'm trained, because any therapist that has a certain level of education, usually masters up, can work with the law enforcement, but I have a specific degree and and, uh, training in how to properly work with law enforcement, so, uh, or the legal system, so I can work with the courts, doing parole, I can work with the police department, I can do sex offender assessments, and I'm trained for that by formal education. I didn't learn it by someone just showing me, because both education, I mean, a regular master's, you can still do that, but you're not trained properly. 
And then you can also do well, like, wait, trauma I, counseling. Hold on. That's not true. Maybe someone trained you, but I went to school for it and got a degree. But you can do like trauma for groups of people. Yeah, right. you can do that with a regular one also. Okay. I think the biggest thing for forensic psychology degree is that I can, I'm trained to work with the inmate population, with the court system, which anyone can do it with a master's, but and you don't need, they don't require a formal training, which they really should because it's completely different therapy. And knowing the court system, um, you know, people in my field that don't have a forensics degree they just get thrown into it and they don't really get training and it's very intimidating to write 13 page uh, assessments when you have never had the training from a school yeah you can learn from your boss if you didn't have it but it's totally different so I did get that second master's for no reason um, other than to learn so I, I could know what I was doing um, all it did financially was get me in deeper debt. Well, it gave you a lot more perspective and the proper training. Yeah, I'm saying financially. I, financially. I didn't gain anything. It didn't lift me up financially in any way. I went for that because I felt like I needed it in order to really know what the hell I was doing in the jails and the prisons and the court system. Do you think it's ever detoured you from getting a client? Because of the perception? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. You mean like it's too intimidating? Yeah, so they think like, well, she's... Or not in the same realm of what they're looking for. Maybe. Right. Because I probably would never know them if they thought that. Has they... anyone ever asked you what that means? Yeah, I have clients say like, what is the forensics part? And I think maybe they're like scared they're going to get arrested. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, but it's that's why I think it's really important to put it out there what that means. Yeah, it means just to like wrap that. It means that forensic psychology means that you are trained in my education that second masters in forensic psychology means that I have a formal training in working with the legal system blended with psychology. That means I've been trained and educated through formal education in order to do that. Do you ever feel like there's a fine line like between police and therapy? What do you mean? So, because you, when you say it's blended, do you feel like, I understand what you're saying, like, how would I say it? So. When you say that you're trained to do that and work with the police, do you ever feel like you have more of a duty because you have more knowledge on the other side? Ugh, I'm more of a duty to do what? So it means like the police. So it's, I haven't worked too much with the police per se, other than like normal therapist stuff where I would call the police for duty to warn stuff, which is if someone's suicidal or homicidal. But other than that, I haven't really worked with the police as much as I've worked with parole, um, the parole division and the parole officers, probation officers, not too much, and the court system. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure what you mean, sorry. No, that makes sense, it makes sense. Just because it sounds like when you hear that blended and working with the police and working, it. it 
my imagination is like you're sitting across from a detective giving them information. Oh no. From for what from my experience, no, I'm that I am doing that with parole when I worked for parole. Um yeah, so the training comes in, I mean, the education comes in more so for your clinical writing, your interviewing skills, you learn how to interview and you learn how to do therapy completely different with inmates and um, the uh, legal system. Okay, so wait, so now we're going to go into a whole nother thing since you just threw that out there, the inmates. So in your career, you got to work in... Prisons, jails, parole, yeah. a lot of things that are taboo in the world, mm-hmm. which is scary from for us as your family to know that you were in that. Okay. Um, but with that being said, what was it like being a female therapist in that world? You always hear about you know women with the good old boys in, in politics, in law enforcement. You don't really hear about women in your field doing what you do therapists yeah you hear about the police officers like all the tv shows so when i went when i got into it the t- all these tv shows weren't out because i'm old well, so um, it wasn't a trendy thing yeah definitely wasn't trendy and um it definitely wasn't on tv so now like now when we're doing this podcast you guys kind of have a visual of what a jail looks like what a prison looks like because of all the shows, but when I went, I didn't even know what the hell I was gonna walk into. I had no idea because I had never been in a jail. Um, Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I learned working in the jail, and then I'll answer your question if I can remember it, is that um, you know we've probably all done something, and I didn't learn this till I worked in there, that could have led us to jail because I thought. The jails were just filled with murderers and rapists. I really never thought of anybody else being in there. And then as I, like the first week, I was like, holy cow, there there were people, there were women like me, there were single moms, there was everybody, and they were there for like bouncing a check. Now maybe like, maybe not one check for 10 bucks, but maybe a couple. I or know. like Target, wasn't there one like that? something from Walmart or under yeah, the cart. Yeah, just like crazy. Simple. Oh, yeah. Somebody stole stuff from Target under their cart. Like stuff where I'm like, oh, God. Which we've all walked out with something under our cart. In- yeah. Unintentionally. Intentionally. And a lot of DUIs. I'm like, oh, back in the day when I was a young, uninformed idiot. Uh, you know, I've definitely drove a car after I've drank a couple drinks. So it was eye-opening about who was in there, but let me get back. I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> so, no, no, this is good. Um, being a female. Oh, what was it like? How did they treat you? Um, well, definitely. So being a therapist in a jail, you are the minority because a jail. So my first, my first professional experience was working in a jail straight out of school with My first master's was in uh, counseling psychology, so I did not have the forensics yet. So again, you can work in all these arenas without having a, sorry, we have puppies with us, Um, and they're about to have a big fight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
you can work in all these places without a forensics degree. I would highly recommend anyone doing that would get a degree just for your own safety and so you know what's happening in the world okay, around you. Wait, we're going to... Hang on one Sorry. second. So, okay. jail and prison, obviously different. Maybe jail is... want to touch Yeah, let me that. say that. Jail is where you go... So they're totally different. Jail is where you go while you're waiting for your charges to be tried in court. So you can be technically, and I don't know about other states, but we're from Chicago. So in Chicago, technically you're not supposed to be there more than 365 days or 364 days while you're fighting your case. So when you get arrested, you go to jail until you see the judge. Now, you can be there and see the judge and fight your case and plead not guilty, and you will stay there until you're sentencing. And that could be years, right? It can be years. It's not supposed to be. It's designed to be less than 364 days. However, it doesn't always work like that. There are people that sit in jail for quite a long time. Prison is where you go after you've been sentenced. You get your prison sentence. So then that's where you go to serve all your time. And then any time you've served, excuse me, in jail counts towards your sentence. So I worked in the jail. Mental health people in the correction system are the far, far minority. Which means what? Explain that a little. It means, sorry, that the entire jail is made up of a paramilitary system. So it's run by sergeants and captains and uh, I don't think they have first sergeants, but they have like sergeants, ca- I mean the, I don't know. What, yeah, lieutenants. It's like the mafia almost. It's like the military. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really like the military. Well, so they wear uniforms like the military. So the that's who makes up the jail as far as staff. Um. So the other people that work there are all the correctional officers. They're the majority. They're they're bosses. They are run by the command team, the command staff, which is all the paramilitary sergeant staff or sergeant lieutenant captain. Then they contract what us mental health people. Very few of the jails hire their own mental health, so we're not in the union. Like a lot of them are union in Chicago. And so mental health gets contracted, so they're not even hired by the county of whatever jail. They're not county employees for the most part, okay? So automatically you're an outsider. So automatically you're not part of the team because you're not even part of, you're not even a county employee like the rest of them. And unfortunately, in the prison and jail systems, mental health is not a priority. Well, mental health is considered... um, so you're considered what when I worked in it, we, we were so there to give you an example, when I worked at the first jail, let's say there were a thousand inmates in the jail. I think that's way too many. There were three mental health workers. And on an average, how many do they get requested? Do they request <clears throat> excuse me, do they request to see you or does the jail or prison refer them to see you? Is it mandatory to see mental health? So, yeah, when they come in, when they first come in off the street, fresh off their arrest, they go into an area called booking. 
And in the booking area, part of that process is where they get like their fingerprints, everything you see on TV. They get their fingerprints, they get stripped out into their uh, jail clothes, all that stuff. And they sit there for hours. Some of them, it's like a reunion and they're having a blast. Like they're really living it up. Um, you think you can kind of hear like a party going on. Oh, like when you see on Cops where they're all in booking and, like, the guy's trying to get the other guy's attention? Yeah, because they know each other because they're in the same neighborhood. So they're like, hey, what's up, bro? And there's <laughs> Petey and little JoJo and Moppy Mo, And so you hear some of that. And then you also hear crying. You hear, but now are you out there during that? Yeah, so uh, mental health has to come to booking every day and do what's called an intake. And then... For each person? For every single inmate or every single in, every single arrestee that's going to be going in jail, that's getting locked up, has to have an into a mental health assessment. And the assessment is to basically determine, like, if they've been in a gang, what gang, so that the prison staff knows where to house them. Because, like, they don't want to put gangs with the wrong gangs. So mental health is, that's a big role. Yeah, it's a big role. And then we also figure out if they're suicidal, which is most important. Because if they're suicidal, then they go into an area where it's called like a suicide cell. And that's where they get, they're basically naked and they're wearing a suicide Ugh. smock. And they stay there until the psychiatrist or myself or mental health clears them. Then they go into general population. So you always see everybody in intake. It might not be me. It's like just the mental health team. Um, so yeah, you're, you're treated totally different because the officers hate mental health for the most part because they call us, <laughs> we were referred to as thug-a-hug. Oh my God. Yeah, because they thought <laughs> that we wanted to hug all of them. And sometimes maybe you did, right? Um, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Like that empathetic side, like if it's not obviously like a murder or a rape. Yeah, even like, yeah, that's probably true. There were times, I mean, I never felt like hugging any of them. Only because uh, they, you know, there's this group mentality. Anyone that knows about psychology, when people are in groups, they act different. So being called out for mental health is not really a good thing when you're in jail. Oh. So when you're called out, like, they don't want to... Everyone in their pod is watching everything that each other do. So if they're called out, they have to come back in and tell why they were out. Who do they have to tell that to? Their pod. And oh, every pod has a pod boss who's running the pod. And everyone has to know to make sure you're, they're not snitching... Make sure they're not doing anything that they need to get their ass beat for. So, you're not treated welcome, or I guess with open arms. From oh, the staff, no. And no. then the inmates. Wait, hold on. So, for me, I was young when I worked there. And I remember you being <clears throat> not treated so kindly because you are very attractive. The women, I was. Stop. The women <laughs> and men generally don't see someone of your caliber come work in a prison 
or jail? A jail. Uh, maybe. I mean, like, my colleagues, and I'm not saying this because I was shocked by it, remember, when I went through it? They wanted you to wear, like... They, like, clothes. I was skinny. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're both hacking and coughing, but we're okay. We don't have COVID. No, it's just negative 23. We're in Chicago. It's, yeah, you can't even breathe. Anyway, so when I went there, I was young, I was skinny, and I wasn't, like, getting all dialed up like I was going to a nightclub or anything. I knew where I was working. You always have to know your audience. But I got so much heat about what I was wearing and my body, and these guys were, like, beating on the window. When, remember when I would walk but by? The, the staff was... Well, the more angry. attention that the inmates were giving me... Um, I can't tell you. I got more dates than Tinder could ever offer. <laughs> <laughs> Not dates, sorry. I got more offers for dates. <laughs> yeah, let's clear that up yeah. really quick. And so the more the inmates would scream and holler for me, um, offering me all sorts of intimate things. <laughs> so pleasant. Good visual. The more they did that, the more the staff hated me. So it was really awful for me because, again, there were only three of us and you worked each shift. So I was alone. Every mental health worker was working alone. And you're alone in a, where, in a cell, in an office? Where are no. you at with the inmates? We had, well, I, mental health people have an, we had an office at the jail. We had our own office, but you're re- rarely in your office. You're out in the jail working so when you're interviewing or doing that intake or where do you go so intake was hilarious because for me coming from working in a hospital privacy was like a number one thing um so this is the thing that i'm telling you how forensic psychology is different when you're working with law the law enforcement so working at the jail intake in the booking area where you do the assessment was literally at a desk that was through a breezeway where everybody's walking through. So they're walking through changing out their clothes. They're walking through doing their fingerprints. So there was no privacy. And we're asking these guys, like, what gang are you affiliated with? What, um, have you ever killed yourself? What meds are you on? Like, so I learned really early on that that was not a good place to get a full read on their on their information so intake was done in the booking area at a desk where everybody walks through if an inmate put in a request to be seen then i would go with an officer to their cell and would the officer stay with you yeah the officer's always with you and they made at least feel did you ever feel like they were not protecting you, or I guess coming back to my original question, being the female, being good looking was none of your fault of you dressed very appropriately. I remember our conversations. You tried to be as manly, I guess, played, yeah, plain Jane as you possibly could. But being good looking, there's nothing you can do to unmake yourself that way. Well, and, and then the other thing that was so funny, like I obviously don't think I'm good looking, but... This one of the sergeants had come to me because it became such a big freaking stupid ass issue, which really pissed me off. It's not fair. No, because I worked hard to get this to this place and had never experienced 
anything like this, like, sexual discrimination, I guess, or gender. I don't even know gender. I don't know what that was. But they ended up coming to me. And remember, I'm not, they're part of them. I'm a contractor. So, but I got along really well with this one sergeant. And he's like, hey, listen, like, there's so much attention on you. And when you guys see me, you're going to be like, why? No. Yeah. You'll understand. No, you won't. But then he was like, listen, uh, we got to do something here. And he told me, he said to me, it's not your face. <laughs> Remember that? He said, it's not your face that everyone's yelling about. It's your body. And Which... I was like, and I said to him, are you calling me ugly? And he was laughing. Like, it was light. But he's like, these guys, aren't, they don't care about your face. But then that's the same for the correction officers. That feeling <clears throat> that you're not part of their team. You're good looking. You're, come on, stop that. So you're coming in to their workspace and they're feeling, oh my God. They're trying to stop the dogs who are tossing candy treats that aren't affecting them. (laughs) They like this conversation. So I remember like you trying to like wear combat boots almost as a joke to see if they would treat you differently. Well, yeah, what I did is I went and bought like the outfit, not combat boots, but I bought like the tactical outfit that the correctional officers wore. And I just wore like a total boy, plain, ugly, ugly, ugly. All right, it's ugly. It was so <laughs> ugly. Like I wouldn't wear it in, ever in my life. I bought a white. No, I didn't even buy white because you make sure. So you have to make sure now your whole. This is where my life started changing. Yeah. So, first of all, no makeup, which I wasn't really a big makeup wearer then. Now I am because I'm old and I have to. But no makeup, no lotion, none, because the inmates could smell you coming in. They knew you were there before you were there, which was so, so creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I stopped wearing lotion, no earrings, no jewelry. I mean, I, and even when I did wear earrings, I was never like, uh, you know, like queen. Yeah, yeah, I was never like... It was like low key hoops, no earrings, no watch, no nothing to show any femininity. I was no literally bright colors, no. nothing to stand out, nothing. No, I V-neck. wore a friggin' navy blue tactical pants. I wore the the boots. They're not combat boots, but they're actually were super cute. <laughs> and then I bought this ugly white collar or blue. Co- I keep saying white. It wasn't white because I had to make sure nobody could see through my shirt. Uh, navy blue and black plain boy collared like a golf shirt and I went to those my... are called polos by the way oh yeah <laughs> god I've never felt more unattractive in my life well you went out of your way to feel unfeminine yeah I took away all my femininity <clears throat> and I remember the day I got that outfit and I went into that sergeant because I did like him a lot and I was like hey like through his door look at like pointed to my outfit and he started laughing because now I look like a boy and I wanted to test it and see like would the inmates leave me alone now that my body isn't showing there were no curves I look like a potato sack I look like shit not just the inmates also the the employees that are there well the employees weren't liking me at all they were treating me pretty shitty for the most part, because the inmates liked me. So you have to kind of pick a side. 
And I don't know if any other females have gone through this working in uh, corrections. I did not go through that working in the prison. It was only the jail. The prison was totally different. When you have to pick a side, just like the inmates have to pick a side. And I was forced because the staff treated me like shit. But why do you have to pick a side? Why can't you Because be? the staff hate the inmates. And the inmates... Okay. I and then it. the inmates hate the staff. So, so it's the, like a cat and mouse kind of thing. And you're in the middle. You're kind of. And you, you know, obviously never working in that, I had no clue that was going to happen. So I'm thinking that I'm part of the, your career a lot. Oh, it in totally the way you thought that really shaped you. I yeah, think. totally. In a lot of ways, I think it it helped you prepare for the world that you were in because it was so different. Oh my God, there was nothing I had ever experienced like that. I was I was really I, you remember I was kind of like I was super upset and mad um, that I had to worry about what I looked like um, working in a jail. Because you think, I mean, I would think from the outside perspective, A, that the, the staff would be welcoming. Um, oh, no. And then <laughs> they were not welcoming. The they inmates, were not. You know, you don't really think of it until, because now, obviously, I've been with you through your career. I understand. But in the beginning, you think, wow, they were probably really grateful to have you coming to oh, help. Oh, no. And then to understand no. that when you walk by... They're waiting for you for sexual purposes as opposed to mental purposes. Who's grateful to have me? The inmates, you would... Um, they, some. Some did. Be, I did... So I did end up building, like, a really good rapport with the inmates. Um, and I did pick my... I did have to pick, and I picked. Uh, because I thought the... Your job was Honestly, I thought the staff were gigantic assholes. And they didn't want me or the, uh, I mean, I don't know what the other mental health experience, because I know one of the other mental health people, because I went to school with her, she was like all about the correctional officer staff. So she was up their asses. And she, so they hate the inmates. I mean, they hate them. They have no compassion for them. They do not want mental health there because they don't think they deserve anybody giving them any they view mental health like that where they're hugging them and like massaging their backs or something i don't Until know what they're on the other side now yeah no yeah. it's a whole different story when you're the one on the other side of that and i think you do a really good job of balancing and understanding that humans make mistakes and that yeah you don't have to uh make out with them and hug them to act like a to do your job but the correctional staff didn't want them having anyone talking to them in any way other than that authoritative way. So they hated us, or they hated me. I can't speak Do to the Do you think they treated the male staff differently? There were only three female uh, mental health people, but... I do know one was up their ass because I went to school. She, like, wanted to be a correctional officer. Not really, but she was just so all about them. So they liked her. And we have a nickname for her, but we can't say it. You know who I'm talking about? No. that was, Oh. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, everybody. No. No, that's a different person. Um, and then the other uh, mental health person, she was a very elderly lady who had been there for many, many years. So they loved her. 
Um, but for me, it was, I had a different experience. It was rough. It was a really rough go and it was hard. Um, it was hard. That's where I decided to go back to school for my second master's. Cause I'm like, I'm going to get fucking eaten here. But I think people need to know, you know, this is one field that just is not talked about enough of behind the scenes. No, because they show on TV what I... I mean, I don't watch the stupid... Sorry for anyone who watches. I don't watch, like... (laughs) I know, my sister loves all those. Like, CSI, and I don't know what the other ones are called. Like, you don't walk in in high heels in a a pencil skirt and... Like Sopranos, you're sitting with... Well, she's doing private therapy, but in a jail, you're not walking in in heels and a skirt and a, you know, blouse and a name tag... And your glasses and the low cut. And <coughs> yeah, and your briefcase. No. When you work in a jail, <clears throat> you're walking in, your name tag is on, and... Um, Didn't it take a minute to get your stuff, right? Like, they can't, you came in, was this the place? And they basically had nothing for you? Well, you don't have, you're not allowed to have anything. You can't bring your phone in, you can't bring pens and pencils in. But the inmates had pens. Right. The inmates had pencils. Which, where was But it? they're little pencils, like, from the racetrack or, like, gambling. They're, like, the mini pencils. The mini number two pencils. Like. Yeah, they're, like, the stubs. So, when you work in a jail, you can't bring anything in. So, you can't How do you be, take notes? They have stuff in there. Where? In the jail. In so, jail. you have to wait until after you're done to take the notes or when no, you're sitting with you him, go get you your have. stuff in your office oh so you can't come in yeah you can't bag. bring stuff in or if you bring stuff in wait i might be that's not true in the jail you could bring certain things in but you get yours everything gets checked which is good because people sneak drugs into the to the inmates you can't bring a pen but the correction officers can bring drugs and cell phones right <laughs> right Makes sense. and i learned all that you know i was like the unjust. Blown away of, like... So this is the other reason. I was accused when I worked at this jail. I was so harassed. If I was this age now, I would have sued the shit out of them. They hara- They thought the correctional staff all the way up from the captain, lieutenant down, they were convinced that I was there undercover. Why? I don't know. And they thought I was undercover trying to gather intel about like anything they were doing wrong. So they were always trying to keep me from knowing what was going on, which is fine, but some stuff I needed to know. Um so they were super paranoid about me. I was accused of being there to write a book. I was accused of being there as an undercover person gathering intel. I was accused of being there as a reporter. I mean, just weird shit that I was like, what are you guys talking about? So they were super paranoid about my presence. Um, They definitely did not like me. And your other question that you asked earlier. So I, anyone who works in a jail is very... Wait, what was the question? You asked me like... Did, I forgot you asked me something like, did they do treat you, did, did I feel safe about them? Yeah. So when you work in a jail, anywhere you move inside of the jail walking-wise, any... So the jail I worked in was set up, picture like an octopus. The head of the octopus is the hub. The hub is where the control center is. That's where the officers work that watch all the cameras, all the monitors that 
view the entire jail, which there's five zillion cameras everywhere. So that, that don't work. No, they work. Oh, they do. Oh yeah, they work. And the off, the control center oh, is in charge of opening every single door. So every pot, every arm of the octopus is an air is considered a, like a pod or a unit in the jail, and it houses different types of inmates. In order to get in any single pod, you have to stand there. You ring a bell, or no, no, you don't ring a bell. I sorry, sometimes I'm confusing the prison. Sorry. You have a, um, a radio. So you use the radio, which I had to learn the language, which was like learning frickin' Greek. You're talking like you're out in the middle of a field in Vietnam. And I was Speaking like... Speaking Greek? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking Greek in Vietnam. I was like, can I just say, can you let me Open in the, the frickin' door. door? But no, you had to be like W227. Like, oh my God. And, and I was, then someone comes with a plunger. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, please tell me I said open the door and not, I need someone to plunge the shit out of a toilet. Like, oh my God, it was so, that was the most stressful is learning that stupid language. Um, and the inmates probably know it better than oh, you Oh, the do. inmates did know it. They know all the codes. So you would have to stand in front and some of the doors to get in to each pod, there would be like two doors to get in. So you would call for control to get in. You'd say mental health, basically trying to get into pod eight or whatever the words were, I don't remember. So then he would, the control officer, could be a he or she, would hear you, look for you on the monitor, make sure you're clear, let you in. But wait, what if you weren't clear? Then they would wait. They so would, you were hurt? No, they would wait, say somebody was walking by. Oh, okay. They would wait till the area was clear for you to get in. So then as soon as it was cleared, they'd open that, pop that door. Then you walk in and sometimes there's another door. When they started hating me at the end of my job there because they were, because I was standing up for the inmates for things they were doing that I fully didn't agree with, they started leaving me locked in between those two doors with inmates in there with oh. me. Yeah. It was really fucked up. And I would be there with the inmates waiting, like one or two, to get through the second door. And you were alone. And I was alone with an inmate or two. They did it wow. more than once. Yeah, I was real fucked up. So if they don't like you or they think you're, have, you're like their paranoia is fucking unreal... Um, they don't like you, you're, you can be in a very dangerous situations, which I was. And knowing now, okay, so let's just, if you don't mind, you can say yes or no. Your age that you were when this happened. Um, I think, I, let's see, I have to go by my kid's age. So, mm. <laughs> let's see. I would say, I was. In your 20s. No, I was 30s. 32, I think. Okay. So, knowing now what you know, is there anything you would do differently in that first phase of your career? Yeah, I'd sue the shit out of them. Would you have stayed? No. No. Because, because of the way they treated you. Because what they, the things I saw they were doing, I would never, I would have fought harder uh, for the inmates. Not that I'm a hug-a-thug, but I also don't agree with certain things are too much personal rights that they're were yeah being denied constitutional rights um yeah that that were being denied and um so here's the part you know the reason they didn't want me there 
Like, so when when you see on those movie or TV shows, like, documentaries, which is what I watch, like, in, if you ever watch Lock Up. So when the officers go in and they have to, they call it, like, um, is it retract? Is that the right word? When they take a, they have to take an inmate out of the cell because the inmate is refusing to walk out. So they give him the chance to step out of the cell. The inmates, sometimes they don't, they get pissy with the officers. So they won't. They'll say, no, I'm not coming out. You're going to have to come get me. Not cooperating. Yeah. So they'll say, come get me. So then the officers will call for their team. Like, it's like a SWAT team. Extraction. Yeah. So they'll call for a team and then they they come in all their gear and then they come to extract the, the inmate. Now there's like, you know, 10 of them or more. To get this one guy out. Okay, that's fine. A little overkill. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's a little overkill. When they do that, they have to have a camera showing everything that they did. Now, I could get in trouble for saying this So probably stuff. don't. So when they do that, they have to turn on the camera to video everything they did. So it's documented that they did it fairly. They, they have very strict policy of how they have to do it, what's done, all the documentation. Well, they would make sure I was not around for after for any of that, which makes sense because I'm not an officer. I don't really need to be there watching any of that. That's not my job or my business. However, you know, word was from what I knew that what I witnessed is they would shut off the camera and more would go on after so that's the stuff that didn't sit well with me because I would see the inmate after and how, and you guys have seen it on TV, they get the holy shit beat out of them. And that didn't sit well with me. Um, there, you know. So if you, if it were reverse, it would have been handled obviously differently. If the inmate was attacking an officer, they were in trouble. If it, an officer attacked an inmate, no consequences. Right. So, but with your license by law, you're supposed to be a mandated reporter. Oh, no. If an inmate attacks an officer, there's a consequence. Right. That's what I'm saying. There, but vice versa, oh, there is if not. An officer Unless attacks an inmate. It depends. On who it is and how it happens. Yeah. But mandated-wise, you're supposed to report when wrong things are happening. Mm. Or no. No. Only not, not during in that therapy. situation. During therapy. And see, and I think that's wrong. I think that's so wrong on every level that there should be checks and balance in every field. You're right. And there's not that. in that field. Because who that, are you going to report to? That's always the Who are you going to report to? The captain who knows what's already going on? The lieutenant on shift? They know. Everybody knows what's going on. So they didn't want me to know what was going on no matter what. Cause they already, what did they think you were going to do? They thought I would probably report them to somebody outside of their jail. So going back then, to which my nobody question, would have done a fucking thing. If looking back now, would you have done that? Would I have done what? Report them? them. Um, I don't. Even to this day, I don't know who I would have report them to. If you knew of a person. If I knew of a person, yeah, but listen, then the, the longer career. I'm in the field, that's how that world works. And if you It wasn't just that jail. Now I've been in the field for 20 years. 
I know that every prison operates like that. Every jail operates like that. That's how the correction world is. So you almost have to turn your head knowing that bad things are going on to oh, yeah. try to help for the better of it. You, yeah, you shut your mouth pretty much. Uh, or you're not going to have a job. Or you're going to be standing at that door waiting to get in. And you're not going to get in. So you have to shut your mouth. I mean, people don't want to hear this. And I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble in some way. But I'm towards the end of my career anyways. Like, this is the truth, you guys. Anyone going to work in there, there's shit that goes down in there that you're not going to... If you're mental health, correctional officers have so much um, anger sometimes because they get a lot of shit from both ends. But mental health, we are the lone wolf. We are the minority by a long shot. And we are not welcome there. They don't want us there. So, I guess we can kind of button that one up. And we can move on to another question. The next would be, I think a big question a lot of people would want to know. I know I've asked you multiple times. Is there ever a time when you've done therapy with people that you know have done very wrong have told you yes I have committed a b c and d do you ever just want to say to them what the fuck is wrong with you and knock it off (laughs) and knock it off um (laughs) what is wrong with you I mean I think and I do say that but not in those words I I, you know, as a therapist, you don't say, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, <laughs> you I'm do say it, but you say it in a therapeutic way. way. Like, you're, you know, you're saying, like, what happened? Like, what made you do that? What were you thinking? What led up to this? And you're, I think so much of your work is in your tone. You know, like, if I said, well, what made you do something like that? Like, that's, you know, that's pretty heavy duty versus what the fuck were you thinking? It's kind of the same question, but it's different tone and different words. So this is why you're educated, because I think for me, I would be like, you've lost your freaking mind. And yeah, see you in 20 years. And that's the other thing I want to go on. So the misconception of time that people are given for crimes blew me away when you shared with me about sex offenders versus murder versus drugs yeah most people do not know this so if you don't want to talk about this no i okay I'll talk about and anything i don't want to talk about i'll tell you okay so that to me is the most mind-blowing and makes me never want to leave my house like what the fact that a drug dealer will spend more time in prison or jail than a person who sodomized a newborn child. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, can you elaborate a little on that? I know you're not a lawyer and you can't say those kind of things, but with your experience of, this will get into the other field that you're in, which was parole, seeing people get out after they did these horrific things... So the big, I can't speak to, I worked with sex offenders only, so I can't really speak a ton on other crimes because I don't have, even though I worked with them, I don't know the ins and outs of how it works. I really only know about the sex offenders because that's what my career was focused on. 
So um, can you tell a little bit? I about can that? tell you that sex offenders to get the variation of the amount of time they get is so unbelievable. Anywhere from nothing to some people commit absolute sex crimes that are. Is it because they're standing in the community because they have money? What's that's what I was going to say. So it can be they get nothing from they get probation, which probation is never, you know, no jail time. They get to sit on at home and some people get different forms of probation, but basically they're still living in the community. And then some people get prison time. Prison time varies from one year. I've seen the longest sentence I've ever seen is 30 years. From my work, I know there's longer in the world. From the, um, I haven't worked with thousands of sex offenders, but I've definitely worked in the upper hundreds, maybe close to a thousand. Um, I would say it's incredible. And when I worked for parole, it's where I saw the huge differences of because the guys would get out, and some guys would and i'm going to you know this is a racial thing but this is what's true and and in the in corrections race is real and it is alive and kicking i mean the racism is alive it's not the way it is in the world and they in prison it's called you know prison and then the world which means you're out in the world racism you know you'll be totally ostracized if you're racist in prison that's how they function. Everything is divided by your race. Uh, and I did also see that because I worked in the in the very, very inner city in a very bad neighborhood, and I'm white-ish. <laughs> I mean, we have some Hispanic in us, but we look white. And um, but I worked in a primarily black area. So in our parole in the sex offender treatment that I did, it was, Mostly black people, a handful of white people, a handful of Hispanic people, and I think, I don't think that we saw anybody else. Now, are you talking about when you were parole. doing parole for sex offenders? Sex offender, working for parole, only, I've only really worked with sex offenders in that arena, and then they were doing, they were mandated by the courts to do sex offender counseling. So I was one of the therapists for that. So I would see guys come with getting a year and a half in prison to 30 years. And I was like, what in the hell? Why are they, Why is there such a difference? Well, over time, the biggest difference I saw was that the white guys got the shortest time. And they're the ones who primarily did the more horrific Um, They're all. No, they're no all I, I think they're, they're, they were all pretty horrible. But the white guys got, like, basically what I would call, like, a slap on the wrist compared to what the black guys got. So then I started trying to figure out what it was. What I saw, this is not, you know, science or statistics, but what I saw was the white guys could afford paid attorneys. Mm. The black guys and the Hispanic guys couldn't afford paid attorneys, so they had public defenders. That was the biggest, biggest, biggest difference. So if you have a paid attorney, they fight for you. You're paying them, and they pay them a shit ton of money. Anyone who defends sex offenders, they probably charge 10 times the amount of a regular attorney. Wow. Yeah. 
And then the other thing that you know I noticed was um, when you when they uh, if they fight their case, so you can plead not guilty, then you're gonna get much less time, whether you're white or black or Spanish or whatever, any other. If you plead um, not if you plead guilt or not guilty and you fight your case, you're gonna get the hardest amount, the biggest amount of time. But isn't this the hardest thing to try to, uh, isn't this the hardest thing to prove in court? They say rape, sex offenders. So these people who have actually been tried because they had an attorney doesn't matter what they did. What do you mean? Their, their punishment differs on... They could have done the same crime, and if you had a public defender versus a paid attorney, one is going to do far less time versus the other. Yeah, because your attorney's fighting far less because they don't care. Which is so sick. Yeah. I mean, first of all, everyone should be punished the same for these crimes. Well, your attor- when your attorney is worth... So anytime there's money involved, things change. So an attorney who's getting paid money, they're going to fight for you. And they're going to drag it out, and they're going to look for stuff, and they get paid by the hour. So they're going to fight. Public defenders, they're just on to the next. They have like 5 million cases on their on their caseload. They don't give a shit about you. So these people are now released back into our community. Wait, where are we at? With After they serve their time? After they serve their time, and they're, they're on parole. On parole, back in our community with these heinous crimes and we're next to them in the grocery stores, everywhere. They're everywhere. And I think that's the biggest thing, like you and I have always talked about, the perception of a rapist, molester, um, all of those horrible titles, they have this look about them. Yeah. And I do you think, because I don't know, do you think society has let that down with all the shows out? No. No. I still think people let their guards down because of their titles. It, oh, they would never. It's the coach. It's the priest. It's teachers they're a little more skeptical of, and maybe priests, but not pastors, not ministers. Um, teachers and priests really got the, the Because of rap, the news. Because of media giving yeah. them that. Other than that, you say, no, my neighbor's an attorney. No, he has a really good job. He's a vice president. Any title that's given to someone automatically, for some reason in our society, lets people's guards down. You don't think that stopped with all the media? No. I think that the media helps encourage those Like, titles. look at Jeffrey Epstein. Exactly. Now, well, hold on. Look at... Um, who is it? Bill Belichick. Who's he? From the New England Patriots. Or no, I'm sorry, Robert Kraft. Bill Belichick is the coach. Robert Kraft was the owner. He was the one in Florida with the sex ring that went on. Oh, you heard I don't about know. it for a good maybe four days. Nothing's ever talked about it again. The guy owns half the world. Right. Money talks. It's gone. Yeah. But this but our media didn't draw any attention to it. Because money. Right. So this is what I'm saying, where people let their guards down because it's a professional. He's wealthy or she's wealthy. Well, yeah, people are smitten by fame. Or title. They're smitten by famous people, title. Look at, you know, Michael Jackson, whether people think he did or didn't. Uh, You know, people are so 
not all people, but most people, some people, are very smitten by fame and title and status. Or your neighbor, so, she's such a nice lady. She's been married for 20 years. She has four kids. And she's yeah. going to babysit, not knowing that her husband is a rapist. Or well, she here's the other rapist. thing. Yeah, it can be the female. Right. People think so much. Females are the most underrated sex offenders in the world. There are Why? so... Because people don't... Even when, listen to the way you're talking. Everything you're saying until just now is he. There are so many female sex offenders that it's not even funny. I, I know the statistics. I don't even know what they are because I don't pay attention to them because they're not real. There's I think there's just as many females as there are males. But it's not publicized. No, so it's not publicized because boys are afraid and girls are afraid. Female, female sex offenders offend girls. Female sex offenders offend boys, but they're not, they're not reported. And they're not looked at as... Dangerous. Right. Or, Even if someone was like, oh, yeah, she she molested her nephew. Okay, p- the whole community is not going to be afraid of her. And it would be the same like in college. If a girl were to take advantage of a boy, it's not treated as a rape. Nope. It's not a big deal. And they're they not afraid of her. Mm-hmm. The boy would be... He would be ostracized, yeah. possibly. So I guess that's a good point to say that. But, again, that image of... Is yeah. what it comes oh, down to. It's yeah. a man. He's yeah. shady. Um, the perception. You don't think of your neighbor or... And a lot of people don't realize. I can tell you that, I mean, not that many, but there are a few good-looking sex offenders. Like, good-looking. Like, they look like your, you know, average Joe. Um, so I would be the one to say, why would he have to rape someone? He's so good-looking. Like, why would he have to do that? Yeah, Um, because that's a great, great point. Why would any... He would never have to rape someone. All the girls love him or all the women love him. And this is the key that you guys need to stick on this. Sex offending is not about sex. It's about power and control. So sit on that for one moment. And most of you who watch the shows, I'm sure they say that in the shows, it has nothing to do with sex it has everything to do with power and control people who feel like they have been wronged people who have yes most in my opinion whether other professionals i respect them completely my opinion from the hundreds of evaluations i've done every single sex offender that i've worked with in one way or another has been sexually abused as a child No, it's not an excuse, but it helps you understand because their brain has been open to sex or, yeah, sexual acts far before it was supposed to and in a traumatic way. So people tend to redo their trauma, relive it, to master it, to gain control over it. And so thereby, we have a new sex offender. And that goes for anything. Like, you'll see... Say people who were firemen, there's a good chance they were in a horrible fire. Or people who are doctors, they had a family member who had cancer and they wanted to help them, so they decided to be a doctor. That's a trauma that they had as a kid, and now they're trying to master and gain control of their trauma, so they become a doctor to feel better. It's the same thing with sex offenders. They were offended as a kid, 
And being sexually molested does not only include intercourse. It includes so many, many, many things. And people don't realize that, including the person, that they were victimized. So, yeah, I don't know what the question was, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, again, where your... Oh, it, it, we were talking about the look. Yeah, they look like everybody. Everybody, and they couldn't be... They They're kids. Be, they can be five. They can be six years old. They, they don't have to be a predator in a coat sneaking yeah. around the corner. It's, they don't always have, like, shaggy hair, or they don't look like the Unabomber. They look like your neighbor, your teacher. And they are. Yeah, yeah they are. Your coach you always have to, you know, be aware of people who really just want to be working with kids. Like, it's not something I'm saying that everyone who wants to work with kids, like, don't lose, don't fall out on me here. But most men don't enjoy working or being around kids. They don't. They barely like their own kids. <laughs> so when men just want to hang out with little kids all the time, it does raise a red flag. You know, and I'm not saying they're all rapists, but I would just keep oh keep an eye on everybody. That again, anybody who wants to just be hanging out with your kids is usually weird. There's weird. It's weird. Nobody people have to make great efforts to hang out with their own kids. They have to make um what's the word like what's the word like you make not concessions but you have to give up things in your life as a parent to make sure you're a good parent. You have to not go out with your friends, not go on vacation, not buy certain clothes, not do things. You have to sacrifice things to make sure your kids have enough. So when you have someone just waltzing in your life who wants to give your kid everything, you need to just hold the phone a little bit. Take a look. Even if it's just a little more attention than Mm -hmm. the other kids where you notice. Why? Yeah, Yeah, why? Why? Which you've taught me these things. I'm not saying these things because I know, I listen, I ask you so many questions that help me protect my kids and the people around me, which I'm thankful for. Yeah, and it's scary and people don't want to hear it or they're like, oh, that's bullshit. I tell you, I promise you from the words of the rapist, it is not bullshit. Everything I've shared with my sister, my family, to try to help us, help our kids and is not from my analyzing, not from me. It's not an opinion. It's It's not an opinion. It is an over... Understated. (laughs) No, it's it's definitely like the majority of what's been said to me. It's not by one offender. They tell, you know, we do very in-depth interviews with them or what's called assessments, which basically are interviews about every single ounce of their life inside and out. And more than one time with each offender. So we, I mean, and I see patterns and it's insane. They don't know each other, but they do the same damn things. So I just want, if you could, as much as you can, share. There are two things that you shared with me that really shaped and changed my life. And I think this will be good for anybody who's listening um, for your own self-protection and for your kids, and for your sisters, your brothers, anybody, that, anybody. Um, one being be alert of your surroundings with the hotel door. 
Oh, yeah. So that's something you know I always fixate on. She's I talking travel about, a lot. I did a podcast, you guys, I think, about... Um, I don't know if I did it. It's about the offender. Yeah, I did it. Um, who has... Who raped someone in the hotel because he had easy access because she left her hotel flap on her door uh, forward so he could just walk in. Now, I travel a ton for work. And I know a million times over whether I went to my friend's room, whether I went to go get ice, just for whatever reason, people have that habit and they don't think of that. The yeah. detriment that can come with something so simple Convenience. as just closing your door. Or people get so comfortable, which blows me away, with thinking they live somewhere safe and they don't need to lock their doors. Like, oh my God. I can't. It, when I hear that, it just like makes my insides fall out. So you definitely have to listen to my sister's podcast on that story. What's which the name of that change one? I can't your... remember. Oh, it's called Hotel Horrors. It's this a podcast on here, Hotel Horrors. It will definitely change the way you travel. <laughs> um, and you'll tell everybody you know, because I do. I make sure everyone that's around me. So I am thankful for these conversations because it doesn't just bring awareness to me. It brings it to, I share it with other people because it is scary. Everyone shares Facebook posts about, you know, oh, Facebook is going to share your information and everyone panics. How about we share the facts that... How to stay safe, yeah. yeah. And how to keep yourself and your kids and your family and everyone yeah, around you. Yeah, let's prevent sexual abuse and rape for yourselves. By something as simple as just closing your door and bringing Bring your, your key. key. The other one of that that is big, aside from the key, is... Um, Oh, my God, I lost my train of thought. I totally lost my train okay, of thought. Okay, so I'll do the other thing, and if you remember, say, it might be just that. jump in. Is when you're at the store with your younger kids, or maybe it's an elderly person, or maybe it's just yourself, and I can never say yeah, the come. word, um, come. Where, where they brush by you to oh, touch you. Oh, frauderizing. Frauderize. So, frauderizing is a French word, and basically it means rubbing up against someone for sexual purposes. So, it's not brushing against someone because you had to because it's a crowded train and you have to get by. They purposely, purposely, I haven't done, we should do one on frauderizing. Except I can't say the word. <clears throat> they purposely rub against you for sexual purposes. So, like, if you're in the store just by yourself or with your kids, they will just, like, instead of, like, oh, excuse me, I bumped into you, they will do what? They still will say excuse me, some of them, but they'll they'll brush against you because they're trying to feel, like, their penis on your back or their breasts, feel your breasts on their, you know, they're trying to feel some part of your body, a sexual part. Or you feel theirs. And is it just men? <clears throat> I've not... So I haven't worked with enough women to hear it ever from a woman. But it's enough to know to scare the bejesus out of me. When I think all the time <laughs> about when someone will brush past me. Like, did they just touch me? Did I touch them? Did I just get sexually assaulted? Yeah. Well, I don't panic. I just think... You'll okay, know. Also, you'll aware. get a weird feeling. Not until we talked about it, because usually if somebody says, excuse me, it takes you off guard. Yeah, you feel like, oh, they didn't mean it. Right, no. it was an accident. I, from them, I can tell you they did mean it, which is why in parole, when I worked in parole, 
we couldn't let them travel. So we had to, not we, the parole officers and us, the therapists, we had to make sure that when they traveled using public transportation, because most of them didn't have cars and we're in the inner city, we had to make sure that our group times were not during times that the buses were crowded because they loved rubbing up against everyone. Oh my God, yeah. is that disgusting. So they couldn't, we couldn't have group during like rush hour because they would be on there um, humping everyone without them knowing it. Oh, just a mental image. And I think back like now in my head playing back like all the people who said, excuse me. Yeah, some of them don't say excuse me, some of them do. And you don't even know it. But the biggest thing of frauderizing aside from that, the biggest thing that they do, the sex offenders do for frauderizing is, um, which I would love to do a whole separate thing on this. We will. Okay. Is uh, they put little kids on their laps. And when they're putting them on their laps... Don't let anybody put their your kids on their laps. It's just, I don't know. For me, it's ruined the lap sitting. Even though I know everyone doesn't do it. But they put them on their laps for sexual purposes. They're frauderizing them. They put their crotch between their knee and they, you know, bump their knee up and down like they're doing like a horsey ride. But the offenders, sex offenders, are actually trying to feel the pieces of their vagina or their um, testicles and penis. But the other thing probably that's important is it's not just a stranger. It can be your family. No, it's not. The, it's usually yeah. not a stranger that you put on their lap. It's their grandpa, their grandma, their their uncle, their your neighbor. And then I can't tell you how many of them love offending. They get off on offending right in front of the parents. And when I ask parents when I'm doing the other side of regular therapy about trauma, they're like, I've never left him alone. And I hate to tell you that they don't offend when they're alone. They do it right. They love doing it right in front of the. But parents. now that doesn't mean every time. No. That happens, no. Because you're going to have the people that are going to be like, no. Oh yeah. You know. Uh, yeah, the people who are going to be like, no, never. Don't listen to this because it's you're not even going to connect. You have to have some self awareness, and awareness to the world to even be open to hearing these things. The people that act like that are usually the people whose kids get offended. Because you have to be open. This is not common knowledge. This is from the words of the offenders. They do it right in front of you. And they put them on their lap. They hold the babies or kids a certain way but they're, so that their hands are touching their, their, their vagina or penises or buttholes. They like to put their fingers in it and you don't know it. They like to change their diapers. They like to bathe them. Their reason, they use regular, ordinary activities to offend them. And frauderizing is a sex offense because it's a hands-on offense. Anytime their hands touch them, they love using bathing. They love holding them. Um, Their favorite thing is called wrestling and horseplay. That's their favorite because they get on the floor and they have their hands all over them. And I've had victims talk about it when they knew they were horse playing, that's their word, and wrestling. Well, here's to tell you, not everyone that's doing that is molesting them, but that's a sex offender's favorite activity to molest and putting them on their lap. And when the parents are there, they don't 
think anything's wrong because they think they're spending time with their kids. Yeah, they think they're, they're bouncing them on them, their knee. Maybe giving them a break to take a nap no, or a shower. They're doing it right in front of them. Well, I'm saying like if the like someone in your family were to say, "Oh, let me change the diaper for you. You yeah. take a break. You go cook, and I'll play with the kids." And they're on the floor wrestling, and you're right in the kitchen. I have one offender. I can picture it. Right in the kitchen. He loved the fact that she was right in the kitchen and he was right there on the floor wrestling them, sexually abusing them, frauderizing them right in front of her. And the kids don't know to come and say, you have the talks with your kids to yeah. say, this. if someone touches you inappropriately, right. I want you to tell me. They don't think it's inappropriate because they're playing. And I can tell you from working with victims that they remember it. They know. They've told me. I knew he was touching me, and I but didn't as know parent, what to say. If I said, "Has anyone touched right. you?" They, they don't would, count that, right? So that I think is important for you to explain. And that's why offenders do it. They take they're opportunists, and they do it. Not all of them. There's there's so many categories of sex offenders that we can do one day. Um, that's why they do it like that. They use everyday activities as ways to offend because they know that a child cannot articulate what has happened. And a child isn't even sure what happened. They're confused, but then they know they're creepy. And then they try not to do it with them or they hope that it was an accident and they hope they misunderstood it, but they know it feels bad. That I can tell you from the victim's mouth. Um, But yeah. Oh, God. And I'm not trying to scare you guys, but this is like, I'm telling you guys what has been told to me from offenders. I'm telling you guys, like, what to watch out for. Just because it's your husband or your your their stepdad who you are Or your are brother, in yeah, your grandmother, the, your grandpa. And like you said, it doesn't have to be a man. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a man. It could be your best friend, your sister, your yes. neighbor, your yep. cousin. A lot of neighbors, a lot of babysitters do it. Babe, from my experience, um, with the with the males who've been abused, they've a lot of males have been abused by their mothers, which is unbelievable. Um, a lot of males have been abused by their babysitters, and they don't even know it. Some of them, yeah, because they're taught to think it's so good, it's normal. Well, no, they're or not th- normal. They're taught but... to think that they should feel. So proud of it that anyone, a boy is taught in our society to think that any time a woman lays their hands on him, they should just feel nothing but honored, which is horrible because the boys are just as scared as the girls. And I have boys. You have a boy also and girls. So we have to understand that when the way that the world perceives things is Sad. In rose-colored eyes, sad. you think rose it's never going to... Yeah, yeah, not eyes. <laughs> you, you think, again, I mean, the perception is is that someone's coming and you, as a parent, you're going to see it. Or as a friend, or as a, you know, a sister, you know, that you're going to know immediately and be able to do something about it. And not, that's and not, not the truth. And not everybody does. There's so many people that know damn well what's happening to their kids and they and do they're nothing. Scared. They do nothing because they either are not in a position financially to do anything. They've been abused and they don't know how to handle it. Call me, email me, and I will help you handle it. My email that you can... Oh, I made an email for this. But you guys are welcome to email me at um, 
kathycassidytherapy at gmail.com. You ever need help, don't send me shitty, rude emails like blasting me. That's not what Saying I... that my grandpa bounced my son and there was nothing wrong. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. What The purpose of this was for me to ask you the questions that helped me prepare my kids, myself, to be safe. Were your kids ever in any situations? Cause, no. Because my sister's kids were in tons of tons of sports. But you helped me But did your kids aware. ever go through anything where you were scared? No. Never. 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 That one coach that got caught. But he wasn't with us. But what did he do to the kids? I don't know. That was something you sent me from the oh. town that we lived in, but we weren't familiar with him. Um, so in all of your kids' sports, there was never anyone accused, nothing? No. I mean, I was very lucky, and I'm sure that that something possibly, probably did happen. Well, there was one coach um, who was ahead of a high school who was inappropriate with the females, mm-hmm. and it was reported, and the school did nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to walk in the locker rooms with them. Yeah, locker uh, room. While they were dressing. For, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the school chose not to do anything, and the girls loved him. They thought he was the coolest thing, and they loved his attention. Later in life, they're probably going to realize that that was not okay. Um, for me, with my boys, you helped me protect them, for sure, 1,000% to never what let did my you guard do down. I was always aware and present. Even if I had a lot of very good friends that were coaches. My husband was a coach. And we had people sleep over. Uh, we had the team sleep over. They all slept over at each other's houses. But we all kind of made it a pact. Like Prime time for abuse, just so you guys know. My husband never would drive one single child alone. Neither would I. If somebody needed a ride, my kids would come with. It would never be just me or my husband taking or dropping off a child alone. They always came with, yeah. which was really important to us because they're little. You don't ever want to put yourself in those positions. Yeah, that's smart. Which, you know, you help me with a lot of paying attention, just not letting your guard down and knowing who's at someone's home. So if the boys were going to sleep over at so-and-so's house, who's the mother? Who's the father? Who are the parents? This day and age, people don't even meet each other's parents anymore, which I find profound. Um, that was very important to us to know the siblings, the brother, who's coming over during that time. Yeah. Um, and, ju- and let me reassure you, just to keep the fear alive, just because you know who's right, there doesn't mean doesn't mean anything. Um, we were fortunate. What I would tell you guys: when your kids go on a sleepover, go to anyone's house, pay attention to how they're acting when they come home. Pay attention, you know, if their mood changes when they're around certain people, if they don't want to go around certain people, or they want to be around certain people constantly, or someone's buying them tons of stuff. It's not saying they're they're molesting them, but pay attention. That's all I'm asking. Pay attention. There are signs. Look at their underwear when you wash their clothes. Look at, see if there's blood in there. Pay attention to things that you would never think of. Because I've had plenty of victims tell me their underwear was filled with blood and nobody ever noticed. And, uh, you know, pay attention to these things. And I'm not saying call 911. I'm saying pay attention and talk to your kids. 
see what's going on. And really and truly, you can email me anytime. I'm happy to help. But again, don't email me shitty stuff and rude stuff. I'm here to help. If you want help with anything, uh, send it to kathycassidytherapy at gmail.com. Um, and I will help in whatever way I can. I hope you guys really enjoyed this podcast. It was super different. And that's what I want this podcast to be, just conversations and different. And if anybody wants to do an interview, I am looking to interview someone who was abused um, and who's willing to share their story. So <clears throat> please email me if you're interested in doing that um, and getting, you know, sharing your story for people to learn more about it. Any other questions, Brian? I know I'm biased because you're my sister, but I think you're amazing for what uh, you do. I think your knowledge is baffling how much you hold and how you still can conduct yourself. Yeah, without blowing my head off. With all the things that are told <laughs> to you, I don't know, and that's my other word that I can't ever say. Compartmentalize. Compartmentalize how you do that is amazing and not want to lock yourself in your house for hearing the things that you do and still want to be a part of society and also want to help both sides. You help the victims and you also help the perpetrators. Yeah. And I think that's something really important that you're not biased. And if anybody needs help, it is beyond a gift. I would definitely recommend you come to my sister. She keeps it real. Um, she does handle it so professionally. Like I said, I would say, what the fuck is wrong with you? And stop it. Knock it off. Um, she clearly doesn't, and uh, I think that's why she's done so well in her career and continues to do so well. And, you know, this isn't like a blow-up, like, oh, I want you to use my sister. No. Yeah, my but practice is pretty thriving. It is, but it's a scary time as a parent, as a human, as a wife. Um, people don't talk about these things, and I love the fact that I can talk with you and that you taught me. I teach my friends. They teach theirs. I teach my kids. And I'm grateful that you're open to hearing it because so many people don't. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. Like, well, you're a dumbass. You're yeah, a real dumb asshole because your kids' lives are at stake. So you owe it to your kids if you have kids to learn about how to protect them from this stuff. And, you know... Making If you're going to, you know, get a therapist, make sure you get a therapist who specializes in sexual abuse. If you're someone who's struggling with um, offending or have offended and want to stop, make sure you get a therapist who specializes in people who have sexual deviance uh, problems or sexual problems is probably how it would be listed. Don't just go to any old therapist because it is very specialized training um, don't be nervous of the word forensic therapist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> forensic means that I work with the legal system. That's it. That's all so, it means. And psychology. It's the blend of psychology and the legal system. So we went full circle on that. So happy Super Bowl to everybody. Oh, yes, we're going to watch the game. And thank you for sharing your Who knowledge. are we cheering for? Oh, gosh, both. It's really... We're cheering for both. That's weird. I mean, well, the Chiefs are amazing, but this may be Tom Brady's last game, so... so we're going to go there. with Tom Brady. But I love Gronkowski. Okay, well, we're going with Brady. <laughs> love you guys. <laughs> happy, happy Super Bowl. Thanks for listening to an hour and 22 minutes. Dear Jesus. Wow, I didn't think we could even do 20. We did it. That's awesome. Bye, everybody. Bye.